Well, let's take out our Bibles and turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. If you're using the chair Bible, you'll find Colossians 1 on page 1168. 1168. Before I begin the reading, let me make just a couple of comments, but let me pray before I do that. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the day that you've provided for us, for the evening as well. Father, bless us this evening as we meditate upon your word. Lord, bless us and strengthen us and have your way with us. Do with us what you will. But Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in the Lord. And make us mindful that you strengthen us. One of the ways that you strengthen us is through elders. And so bless us in that thought this evening, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Well, um, tonight we were going to have an elder election. And I was going to say to you, and I still mean it, that uh, elders have global implications. What we were about to do tonight certainly had effects, not just for us in Gibsonia, but has truly global implications. Let me just go on a brief aside for a minute. The RPCNA has a particular position, uh, which may or may not mean anything to you, uh, but it when you think about uh, the eldership, you can either be uh, a two-office person or a three-office person. And uh, that, that means simply this. If you're three-office, there's a pastor, then there are elders, and then there are deacons. If you're two-office, then that means you have elders and deacons. And uh, the RPCNA has a two-office view. There are elders and there are deacons. That doesn't mean there isn't a distinction in the elders. There most certainly is. There are ruling elders and there are teaching elders. But that doesn't mean that teaching elders don't rule and ruling elders don't teach. They certainly do. Uh, But it is a way of looking at the eldership. And uh, I want you to simply know that that's the RPCNA position on it. And then I want you to know that this text though it comes in the providence of God for this evening, is ambiguous enough that I think it serves well the purposes of bringing before your your thinking uh, what it means to be an elder in Christ's church. Why do I say that? Because uh, the word for elder is not used in this text. We're told that Epaphras is a minister. We're told that he is a, a fellow servant But we're not told that he is an elder. But the implication is certainly there, that Epaphras is the pastor, or at least a ruling elder, in the church at Colossae. And uh, the the interesting thing is that uh, though he's not called an elder, he is called a deacon, uh, ministers are certainly deacons, as are Christians, deacons. And so 
the idea is there, the ambiguity is there, and uh, this text serves well for us to think about the position, not just of a teaching elder or a ruling elder, but an, an elder in Christ's church. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 3 through 8 together. This is the word of the living God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the inerrant and infallible word of the living God. Well, what about the structure of this text? Let me just say a word about it. When you look at uh, this text, 3 through 8 is certainly a piece, but, but it's more than that. It's interesting because when you flip over to 9 through 14, uh, you find vocabulary that's repeated. In fact, a concentration of vocabulary that goes back and forth between 3 through 8 and 9 through 14. And, and you might say it like this. 3 through 8 are the things that Paul's thankful for, and 9 through 14 are the things he prays for, and they are like. Now, something else. I want you to understand that this is a prayer of thanksgiving. But we have a tendency to, to think about private thanksgiving. We have a tendency to think about what, what sorts of things am I thankful for. I count my blessings. I name them one by one. This is not that, although it, it's not divorced from it. It certainly is that, but it's bigger than that. What Paul is saying here is, what ought we to be thankful for as we watch the work of God in you? And that's not just a personal cause for thanksgiving, though it is. But it's a cause for global thanksgiving. It's a cause for every believer, for every church to give thanks and that's the idea here. This is a public thanksgiving. Why is that important? Why is that important not only for the Colossian church, but why is that important for us? Well, for the Colossian church, it's easy to say. Uh, this was a really difficult time that they were in. I mean, Rome had burned. Uh, things were getting, getting tougher. And, uh, and let's just face it, to be a Christian, well, you were putting your life in jeopardy. Why is it difficult for us today? And why is it important? Well, it's important for us because we're living in tough times. It's really difficult today. I mean, we have all kinds of difficulties coming from all different directions. And this text is important for us because the world around us needs to know that Christian people are not dependent upon their circumstances. Christian people have reasons to give real thanks despite circumstances. That's what this text is saying, and that's why it's important. Whether it's in Paul's day, when Nero is acting like a total imbecile, or our day, when leaders are acting like total imbeciles. We as Christians have reason to give thanks. And that's important. And we need to take that to heart. 
So let's think about that tonight. First of all, I want you to know that we thank God. We thank God. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just stop there for a minute. This is significant, but it's personal. I want you to think about Paul the Apostle for a minute. If you think about him, to add that second line, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, boy, that was something that Paul would have never considered doing before Acts chapter 9. Why? Well, before Acts chapter 9, he was persecuting Christians. He thought of Jesus Christ as an imposter. There was no way in the world this Jesus could have this honor. I want you to just go back with me to Isaiah 45, and this will give you a glimpse into what Paul was thinking. In Isaiah 45, we read something that every Jewish person, like the apostle, would have assented and amened. Look at verse 5. Yahweh says, I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. Paul would have said yes and amen to that. And this Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, the second person of a what? A trinity? Oh no, 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 no. This sect needs to be persecuted and stamped out for the betterment of Judaism. I want you to then go on to 45 verse 23 for a minute. And in 45.23, this is what it says. Go to the midway point of that verse. God says, the God who just said, there is no one besides me. There is no God besides me. Says this, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now if you just flip backward to Philippians chapter 2 from Colossians and read what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 he says therefore God has rightly exalted him that is Jesus Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, now, now Paul says, this Jesus is Lord. And we must bow the knee to Him, for He indeed is God. His glory is not derived as Moses' glory was when he came down from Sinai. No, glory is original with Him because He shares the very essence of the Father. And consequently, in John 1.18, we're told that Jesus, who was in, who dwelt in the bosom of the Father, could come and exegete the Father, and in fact did explain the Father to us. And so we're thankful to God. Thankful to God for the Lord Jesus Christ, because He sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. But not only that, so that the Son could explain, exegete the Godhead to us. And so he did. And so we are thankful for that. Secondly, we need to remember that for which we are thankful. And Paul says there are three virtues here for which we are thankful. Faith, hope, and love. Very familiar to us all. These are a triad that appear elsewhere in Paul's writings, in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, and certainly 1 Corinthians 13. But it's not just in Paul's writings. You find them in Peter 
And you find them in the book of Hebrews. But this isn't the only place you find triads. You find triads in other places in the New Testament. For instance, you find Paul using prayer and thanks and joy. In fact, the interesting thing is he opens the letter uh, saying uh, prayer, thanks, and joy. And then he actually reverses the order at the end of the letter. He treats it as an inclusio, this triad. Why are there these triads? Well, no one really knows for sure. But one of the reasons for their existence, at least it's thought, is that this is a handy way of summing up the Christian experience or the way a Christian behaves or even the way a Christian thinks. It's a wonderful thing to think to yourself, I I need to be thankful and joyful and prayerful. It's helpful to us. It's a compendium. But it's also this. It's evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. When you see faith and love and hope, well, you see the Spirit of God at work. So let's just walk through those for a minute, see what Paul says about them. These are the evidences for which we give thanks. First of all, faith. Now, this isn't just any faith. It's not just faith and faith. That's what our world loves to say. We have to have faith and faith. No, this, this faith has an object, and the object is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ. It's interesting when you think about it, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who gives faith that we might lay hold of him with it or by it. And so there's faith. But not only that, there's love. Love for all the saints, the holy ones. So there's faith in Christ and there's love for the brethren. I don't know about you, but in in some way I think that mirrors the Ten Commandments. The first four, faith in Christ, and the last set, love for brethren. But then there's hope. And hope here in this text is used as the wellspring or the reason for faith and love. Hope. Faith and love spring forth from hope or because of hope. Now, you need to understand that saying this back in that day was quite quite an astounding claim. Why? Because Greek mythology had their own idea about hope. You remember Pandora's box. Pandora's box is that, that creepy story about the girl having been given a box, being told not to open it, and you know how it is. Don't put your hand in the cookie jar, and she just can't help herself. She puts her hand in the cookie jar, opens Pandora's box, and out come all of these evils into the world. The last evil to come out of that box is, you guessed it, hope. It's interesting, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, who is a crazy man in and of himself, modern philosopher, uh, literally a crazy man, um, was a pre-Socratic specialist in philosophy. And And this is what he says about that. He says... Hope was the evil of evils. Why? Because Zeus didn't want human beings to despair and so take their lives. And so he gave them hope. And by hope, he would string them along from one day to the next and so keep them alive as his playthings. That was the idea of hope with the Greeks, or at least many of them. And Paul says this, that's not hope. He says, our hope is stored in heaven. Now the question is, what's in heaven? And the answer is, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's interesting to me, though, if you go a little later in this letter, if you go to chapter 1 and verse 27, it, it asks, what's the hope of glory? And then he says this, it's Christ in you. You know, it's interesting to me uh, when you think about it, because this hope that's stored for us is in heaven, and yet the hope of glory is Christ in me. It's sort of like, it's like John 14. When you think about it, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And then later in that same chapter, he says, the Father and I will come and make our place in you. There's a reciprocity here. And what he's really talking about is union with Jesus Christ. Union with Christ. We are in Him. He in us. And so these are the things that Paul sees in the Colossians, or at least hears about in the Colossians, because remember, he's never been to Colossae. He's heard Epaphras, their pastor, talk about them. And he hears these things and he says, these things are evidence for which we must give thanks to God, publicly proclaim. Let me ask you a question, because the text drives us to this question. Is there reason to give thanks for you? Is there reason in your life to give thanks? You know, it's a challenging question, isn't it? What is the Lord producing in me for which others can be thankful? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. But we're going to hasten on tonight and we're going to look at the third point, and that is this. The one who gives cause for thanksgiving. Take a look at this. I've given you the structure 3 through 8, 9 through 14, but there's something else here that's really fascinating. Look Look at the way in which he uses this idea of hearing. It's in verse 3. Uh, sorry, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith. Now jump down to verse 6. He says, since the day you heard it, that is the gospel. Since we heard of your faith and since you heard of the gospel. Again, there's a reciprocity here. What is he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, we heard about you and you heard about the gospel through the same person. And that person is Epaphras. And this Epaphras is our fellow slave. And I want you to know something, you Colossians, says Paul. This man loves you because he told us about these things in you. And because of that, we rejoice and give thanks. But what else is there here? Well, let me say this really briefly, quickly. I said to you in the beginning, I said, an elder election. Elders have global implications, global importance here. You see it in this next point. Notice what the text says. Paul says, verse 6, which has come to you, this is the gospel, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, What does that remind you of? Bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. Well, it reminds me of Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, of course, that was biology back then. And and surely it's not excluding biology now. But I'll I'll tell you what Paul has in mind. Paul has in mind... The spiritual multiplication of spiritual children all over the earth, over the whole world. 
fruitful and multiplying. And that's a reason to give thanks, a public reason to give thanks. And here is the point that I would make to you. Christ's elders, elders like Epaphras, play a significant role in our reason for rejoicing for the spread of the gospel. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that you will bless us richly in your word. Father, we, uh, we know that there are many and various reasons as to why we were not able to hold the election this evening. And uh, the COVID-19 threats are certainly among those. And yet, not having this election this evening is disappointing especially when we look at a text like this one. So, Father, we pray that you will bless us, and that you will not only bless us, but you will bless the world through not only this elder election, which will come, but others. So we thank you for those, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.